Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. 2006, I was living in New York, but I had to come to Philadelphia for a training for my job. And when I uh, came to Philly, I was like, I'm going to get a cheesesteak. I've been eating these New York you know, heroes uh, sandwiches, what they call them there. I'm going to get a cheesesteak. And <clears throat> this is when Google was just kind of a thing, just starting. And not every business and church had websites. And so, you know, think in 2006 terms. So I just Googled best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. And you can probably, yeah, uh-oh, is the right, yes, uh-oh, because... Top two were Pat's and Geno's. Well, they're not the best. They're just the most famous, right? So in 2006, I was in Philly. I Google it, Pat's and Geno's. I said, that's convenient. They're right across the street from each other. I went to Geno's because I like bright lights, and I like to be made to feel like an idiot. And so I go to Geno's. I order my, I said, may I please have a Philly cheesesteak? I sounded like a real outsider. So... It was, it was good, it was fine, you know, uh, whatever. Well, in 2008, I moved here. And uh, when I got here, I saw this cheesesteak place on Torsdale right up the street, Joe's. It had a different name back then, but Joe's. And so I went, yeah, I know what it was called. You don't need to remind me. Uh, so I went to it, and uh, I got a cheesesteak. And I'd never heard of this place. It didn't pop up on any of the websites or the searches for best cheesesteaks. And I was like, this is incredible. Why has no one heard of this? Why is no one talking about this? But everyone's getting directed to Pat's and Geno's. Like, why does this have no reputation and Pat's and Geno's have this incredible reputation? And that's when I started to learn. You you guys from Philadelphia have been very kind and polite in how you've educated me. (laughs) The... Pat's and Geno's is just for tourists. It's a tourist trap. It's down by the stadiums. It's where people go when they're either from out of town or drunk. Whereas, you know... I've, now I've had a chance to try Joe's, D'Alessandro's, Jim's, Steve's, and a couple places down at the Reading Terminal Market that are much better. I was told not to try the Wawa cheesesteak. Is that, that correct? Okay. Wow. Is it as good as the Wawa empanada? Or No? Okay. Wawa's really stretching themselves thin nowadays. So, man, I was, I was like, Joe's has no name, no reputation, but... These other ones have this reputation, but they don't live up to the reputation. Why does the one that lives up to it not have a reputation? That's, a, that's the funny thing about reputations. They're not always right. And, so, and if, even when they are right, there's a lot going on there. You know, every reputation, it's based on something. Reputations don't just appear out of thin air, right? It's based on something, but also reputation reveals something about the person who gives the reputation. Like, Pat's and Geno's is given that reputation, and you can tell that that reputation comes from outsiders, right? It comes from people who are from outside of the city who have not had as much experience with cheesesteaks as you and I have. Reputations are based on what other people say or think about something, whether it's a, a restaurant or a church or a city or you and I as individuals. Reputations are the opinions of other people. They are the judgments about our words or our actions, but they are interpreted through the values of another person. 
So, for instance, I kind of have a reputation as being grumpy because I have this, my face at rest is a grumpy face. It's just, you know, when I'm not paying attention or trying to pretend that I'm friendly, my face gives the appearance of a grumpy person, and so do, so do some of yours, by the way. Now, <clears throat> so that can give me the reputation of being kind of maybe gruff or not warm or something like that. And I'm actually perfectly fine with that reputation because that's why I always have my own seat on the bus or the L because no one wants to sit next to that mean guy. Well, but reputations are just as much about the person that has it as the person that's giving it. It, it, it tells us about the person that's giving the reputation or assuming the reputation. Today we're going to look at the fact that Jesus was called the friend of sinners. But I want you to know that that was not a title he chose for himself. That was a title that was given to him by the Pharisees. It was not a compliment. It was an insult. When the Pharisees called Jesus a friend of sinners, that was based on Jesus' behavior, but it was also based on the perspective of the Pharisees. They weren't saying, oh, how wonderful. Jesus befriends sinners. They, they were saying it to discredit him. Oh, he befriends sinners. He's friends with sinful people. So when we talk about Jesus being the friend of sinners, that was his reputation, but I want you to understand that that reputation was given to him by people who did not value what he valued. Now before we get into the story in Luke chapter 7, there's a couple players in this story that I want to explain so that we know exactly what's going on. Some of these folks you'll know already, but for those that aren't familiar, this will be helpful. Number one, we have Pharisees. The Pharisees are religious experts. Nowadays, I'm just not sure I even like the word expert, but Pharisees were religious experts who went to extremes to publicly display their religious commitments. So not only were they experts in the law, but they wanted you to know that they were experts in the law. They wanted a reputation for themselves that they knew what they were talking about. They tried to create social distance between themselves and everyone else, not six feet to avoid a disease, but social distance, breach of relationship so that you don't contaminate me with all your dirty old sin. I'm a holy, this is how the Pharisees, this isn't me talking, this is the Pharisees talking, I'm a holy person. Don't contaminate me with your sin. Stay away. Announce that you're unclean so that you don't, contaminate me or infect me with your sin and dirt. The Pharisees were uh, the leaders of the religious community that Jesus came into, and he actually had a lot of conflict with the Pharisees. They are often viewed as the bad guys in a lot of stories in the Gospels. Tax collectors is next. I know everybody nowadays loves tax collectors, but it hasn't always been the case. Just kidding. Tax collectors in this context, the tax collectors that we're talking about here, these are Jewish tax collectors that work for a non-Jewish government. They were kind of selling out. They worked for the Roman government. They went around to their Jewish brothers and sisters and would collect taxes, but they would also inflate what you owed on the taxes. So if you owed $10 in taxes, they would say, you owe $13, and they would keep that extra three for themselves. They would inflate your tax burden. Well, everyone knew they were doing that. Everyone knew that they were lining their pockets with that extra money. Because of this, the tax collectors were actually very wealthy. They lived lives of luxury. They were very comfortable because they were stealing from their own people and keeping some of it and giving the rest to the government that was over them and oppressing them. 
Uh, it was not uncommon for them to inflate the tax burden and keep the excess. This often resulted in tax collectors being wealthy, and everyone hated tax collectors except Jesus. Finally, there are just plain old sinners. Sinners are uh, referred to as a heathen or wicked person or someone who practices or is devoted to sin. And sinners and tax collectors are usually mentioned together in the Gospels. It's kind of like you say them in the same breath. There's the sinners and tax collectors. So these are some of the main characters in this story that we need to know. Of course, there's Jesus, and we're going to get to a Pharisee named Simon, and a prostitute as well. That'll help us understand the story. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 7, verses 33 through 50, and then we're going to go through this chunk by chunk. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now when one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, was requesting Jesus to dine with him, and Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, probably a prostitute. The word here is a sexually immoral sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing Jesus' feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Well, if this man was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person the woman is and who's touching him that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon. Now, Simon is the name of the Pharisee. This is not Simon Peter. The Pharisee's name is Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. Jesus told a parable. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay... He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Oh, I suppose the one who forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but, she was, she, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When he said to her, your sins have been forgiven, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, we find out in the first couple of verses what Jesus' reputation was among the people, and they use John the Baptist as a contrast for Jesus. It starts in verse 33. They don't really like John the Baptist or Jesus. This is Jesus speaking in verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine. John the Baptist lived what I would call a life of consecration. Even before he was born, an angel told John the Baptist's parents, do not let him drink wine. He probably was what number six calls a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, a Nazarite. He drank no wine. He lived this life of uh, isolation off in the wilderness. He didn't spend a lot of time with people. He didn't really wear nice clothes. His clothes were made of camel's hair. Uh, He 
ate locusts, which are giant insects, and dipped them in honey to give them just that nice locust sweet taste that you all love. He, he lived a life of separation, isolation, consecration, whatever you want to call it. And you know how the Pharisees judged him? He's demonized. Anyone that lives like that must have a demon. Look, he's off in the wilderness. He eats weird food. He dresses funny. He won't have wine. He must be demonized. Well, then on the other side is Jesus. In verse 34, Jesus about himself says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. So Jesus came in a totally different way than John the Baptist. John the Baptist wouldn't drink wine. Jesus drank wine. John the Baptist only ate bugs. (laughs) Jesus ate bread. John the Baptist lived out in the wilderness. Jesus was with tax collectors and sinners. They said John the Baptist was demonized. So what's up with Jesus? They said, oh, he's a drunk and a glutton. He's a friend of sin. I mean, there, there was no pleasing the Pharisees, right? Didn't matter how you lived, You could not make these hyper-religious people happy. If you were too strict, you had a demon. If you were too loose by their standards, you were a glutton and a drunkard. It's interesting that they accused Jesus of gluttony. I was always under the impression Jesus had incredible abs. But but they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, we know gluttony and being drunk are sins, and Jesus was sinless, so he obviously wasn't a glutton, and he wasn't a drunkard, but that was the reputation that the Pharisees tried to give him. That says more about the Pharisees than it says about Jesus, right? They're trying to discredit him. Well, what else do they say to try to discredit him? He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here's where this friend of sinners phrase comes in. We have come to appreciate that about Jesus, love that about Jesus, enjoy that about Jesus, but I want you to know that the people that gave him that title did not appreciate it. They were trying to discredit him. They were trying to play the guilt by association game. Oh, well, Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but look at all the people that's with, they're with Jesus. He's guilty by association. Guilty by association is a game that religious people play rather than deal with issues that are actually at hand. Rather than think critically, we paint with a broad brush, smear people with other people's sin, and we ascribe guilt because of who they associate with, not because of their actual actions. uh, About a year ago, there was a little bit of a controversy about some famous Bible teachers and pastors because Pastor A, who was most people consider a false teacher. Pastor A took a picture with Pastor B. And then later, Pastor B took a picture with Pastor C. Therefore, Pastor C is a false teacher because he took a picture with someone who took a picture with a false teacher. Only Christians would do this type of thing. Although the world is catching up. But we started it. This guilty by association thing where it's not your own, we don't even assess you or evaluate you by your own actions, but we evaluate you on the actions of other people. So they call Jesus the friend of sinners as a way to discredit him. They want him to lose a reputation and they want people to doubt him and not trust him. Now, how did he get this reputation? What were they looking at that made them think this? Well, in Luke 15, it says that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. And also we see two different uh, places that he ate in the house of a tax collector. Remember, they hated tax collectors. 
They, they, they were sellouts and they were uh, traitors and they were thieves and Jesus ate with them. It says in Luke chapter five uh, that Jesus visited Matthew the tax collector's house and he ate there. Jesus explained why. He said, it's not the healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus eats in the home of Zacchaeus and other tax collectors. Zacchaeus essentially confesses that he's been stealing from people because he says, I'll, I'll stop and I'll give back what I've stolen. Jesus says while he's eating in Zacchaeus' house that I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus went under the roofs of these two tax collectors because he's on a rescue mission. He is seeking people who are lost. He is a physician for people who are sick. He has come to call sinners. So that's why he went into their homes. I know that when I was early, early in my faith and my uh, following Jesus, it was almost uh, ingrained in us that not to eat with, associate with, fellowship with anyone who was openly practicing sin. In fact, people in my uh, you know, community of faith wouldn't even enter the homes of people who were in sin because they felt that if they did that, if I go into your house, then I'm, you, you might get the impression that I'm validating all of your life choices. You know, if I eat with you, you're gonna think that I agree with all of your decisions. That's the opposite of how Jesus thought. Jesus didn't eat with sinners so he could validate their sin. He ate with sinners so he could validate God's mission to save them. He ate with sinners so he could say, I'm validating your worth, that you are worth me coming to get. But he wasn't validating every choice they made. He wasn't saying like, ah, I'm cool with how you live. I'm cool with every decision you've ever made. I think sometimes we're afraid that by having a friendship with a person or having a meal with a person or having a conversation with someone, that somehow God's gonna hold us accountable for their decisions. And we might accidentally give them the wrong impression that we agree with everything they've done and if we agree, then God agrees. And what a crazy way to live and what an unchristlike way to live. When he went under their roof, when he went into their homes, he wasn't validating everything they'd ever done. He wasn't validating their sin, saying everything you've done is fine, there's no issues here. He was saying, you're worth, he's validating them and saying, you are worth me coming to save. And so that's why Jesus went into these houses and ate with these sinners. Now the Pharisees didn't like that, and because of that they started to accuse him of being a friend of sinners, which is something we've come to like, but they used to discredit him. Now, I want to look at really quickly how the sinners and the Pharisees felt about Jesus. Jesus got such an interesting, uh, he took such an interesting approach. You know, Jesus, we view him now today as a religious figure, but really those of us that read the Bible know that he's not just a religious figure. He's the son of God, fully God, fully man, you know, deity, God incarnate. I can't say enough about Jesus. But if you just look on the outside, he's a religious figure. When he came onto the scene, who did he select as disciples? <laughs> Tax collectors that everyone hated, fishermen, and no Pharisees. He didn't pick one religious expert to be in his crew. How do you think the Pharisees internalize that? You're a religious teacher and you didn't pick one of us, but you got these fishermen. You know, you got this tax collector, but Jesus is constantly at odds with all the religious experts that existed around him. He's constantly 
arguing with them, confronting them. He called them even a brood of snakes. I like this Jesus guy. Way more personality than we think he uh, had. Well, the sinners were constantly inviting him over for dinner. Finally, one of the Pharisees decides he's going to do it. In verse 34, one of the Pharisees, this Pharisee's name is Simon. One of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. This Pharisee decides to invite Jesus over. While Jesus is at Simon's house, word gets out that he's there in this woman, this sinful woman, probably a prostitute. She finds out, Jesus, I've heard about Jesus. It seems evident to me from the passage that this, this woman who's, this sinful woman is repentant for her sin. She's not trying to excuse it, defend it. Like she sees Jesus, this is an opportunity to be forgiven of my sin. I've heard incredible things about this man. So she goes into the house. Now, do you think the Pharisee invited the prostitute? Or do you think she just invited herself in? I think she invited herself in. There's nothing in the passage that leads me to believe the Pharisee was like, oh yeah, come on in. I think she heard about Jesus and found out how to get in. She got in and Jesus is reclining at the table and she begins this process of washing his feet. She sees that his feet aren't washed. She begins to cry. She's weeping now in Jesus' presence. Her tears are dropping on his feet. She's using her own hair to wipe his feet and to wash his feet. She has this vial of perfume. This is a different story from when Mary did it. Mary did the same thing. These are two separate accounts. So now she's taking the perfume and putting this on him, and she's essentially worshiping Jesus. Well, Simon doesn't really like this. He is appalled at this, actually. And in verse 39, Simon says this interesting thing. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, okay, to himself. He didn't say this out loud. He either whispered it or thought it. Well, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. <clears throat> Simon sees what's happening. He can't believe Jesus is letting it happen. You know, nowadays, it would be very awkward if someone came and started crying on your feet and wiping your feet with their hair and put and kissed your feet and put perfume on your wouldn't that be kind of awkward it was awkward then this is not a normal thing to do even in that culture as uncomfortable as it would make you feel today it made them feel it is not normal at a dinner party in first century israel to kiss a person's feet or to wash them with your tears or to cover them in perfume it was very uncomfortable and I'll, in a moment, I'll show you it's even more uncomfortable for Simon. But Simon's uh, assessment is, well, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what's going on. It's interesting because Simon's understanding of prophecy or the prophetic is it's to identify sin and stop them sinners. That's why you would be a prophet. It's to stop them sinners. Well, Paul told us in the New Testament that the purpose of prophecy is to build up, to edify, to strengthen, and to encourage but Simon thought it was 
well, if you were a prophet, you'd get this sinning woman off of you. So he misunderstands the prophetic, and of course, Simon's disgusted at, this, at everything that's going on. Well, Jesus decides, well, I don't know what he decided, but in a turn of events in verse 40, Jesus decides to tell a parable, which is going to go directly against what Simon's been thinking in his head. So Simon's not sure Jesus is a prophet anymore, but Jesus is going to go full prophet mode and read his mail and, t- and tell a parable that goes exactly against what Simon's been thinking. He starts this parable. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, okay, teacher. Well, a money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. That would be like $100,000. And the other 50 denarii, that would be like $10,000. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? So I don't want to say that Jesus is trapping Simon. But I think he's creating a teachable moment to address what's going on in Simon's heart. Because Jesus tells a hypothetical story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and about, it's a parable about some money lenders. Like, it's so off and separate from what they're doing right now at this dinner party. There's no way Simon would know that Jesus is about to pull a juke on him and say, Aha, it's you. So Jesus asked the question, okay, this one man was forgiven $100,000, the other man was forgiven $10,000, which one is going to be more grateful? The obvious answer is the one that was forgiven the greater debt, right? So Simon the Pharisee walks right into that, and he gives the correct answer, and Jesus says, turning aside to the woman, he said to Simon, don't you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. When you and I have someone over to our house, there's certain customs that we have, right? When I have someone over to my house, one of the first things they'll say is, can I take your jacket? If they give me their jacket, I throw it in the closet on top of the kid's toys. Would you like something to drink? Coffee, water. Would you like to have a seat? These are customs we have, right? Their customs, they had three customs. And someone, when someone came in, they're all wearing open-toed shoes, walking in the dirt. First thing you do is offer them some water. Would you like to wash your feet so you don't track it through my house? They give them a kiss on the cheek. This is (laughs) pre-coronavirus. And they offer some uh, perfumed oil for their face. Now, they're out in the sun all day. This is in the desert. Chapped face, right? So a little oil with a little perfume. They're also not bathing every day. So you put a couple stinky people in a small room. There's no Glade plug-ins, guys. We're doing perfumed oil, okay? So you offer them water for their feet, perfumed oil for their face, and uh, what's the other one? Kiss them on the cheek. What does Jesus say? Do you see this woman? I entered my house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she's... Since the time I came in, he has not ceased to kiss, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Simon is not even polite to Jesus. He's actually rude. He's breaking with every custom. This would be like if you came over to my house and I did not take your coat, did not offer you a seat, did not offer you a drink, and it was just kind of rude. This Pharisee is being rude to Jesus, but this woman is coming and she's meeting every customary need that he would have to attend this dinner party. 
Jesus says in verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Jesus forgave her sin, which required him to acknowledge it. He didn't deny it, redefine it, hide it, or excuse it. He named it, and then he forgave it. I want to work this out a little bit. He doesn't say to the woman, it's fine, no big deal, everybody makes mistakes, which is, I think, kind of what some of us would say sometimes. Oh, you're a sexually immoral woman, it's a mistake. No, a mistake is like, dropping dinner on the floor. That's a mistake. Living a life of repeated sexual immorality is not a mistake, it's a sin. Right? There's a difference between mistakes and sins. This woman is living a life of sin, and Jesus actually says of her, her sins, which are many, he doesn't redefine it, he doesn't call it a boo-boo or a whoopsie or nobody's perfect, he calls it sin. This is a violation of God's kingdom. It's an offense to God. It's hurting you. It's hurting other people. He calls it sin, but then he forgives it. Every time that we repackage, redefine, rebrand sin, we minimize people's understanding of their need for forgiveness. You know, when we say, oh, yeah, it's no big deal, Nobody's perfect. What we should be saying is, God is forgiving. If you will receive his forgiveness and be forgiven, this sin will not be held against you. But instead we try to minimize the sin and squish the sin. Well, what does Jesus say? It says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Why are we making people feel like they're being forgiven little? All that's going to lead to is little love right? There's this huge chasm between us and God. We're trying to make them, you know, think it's a crack. We need people to understand the size of the gap that exists between us and God, and and really what Jesus is accomplishing and achieving by forgiving us of our sin. But every time we downplay sin, minimize sin, we're actually leading people into a life of little love, Little forgiveness brings little love, but big forgiveness brings big love. That's what Jesus taught in this passage. Without condemning people, without insulting people, without judging people, we need to communicate some way that your sin is what separates you from God. But there is forgiveness. Not the minimizing of sin, but the celebrating of God's forgiveness and God's grace. Every time we downplay sin, we downplay grace. The Pharisees had a concept of righteousness, and righteousness just means to be right with God, okay? So have you ever had a relationship where you don't feel right with the person? You've, you're arguing with them, you're giving them the cold shoulder, there's some tension. It's just like, I don't, I'm not right with so-and-so. Righteousness is being right with God, Okay, some people are self-righteous. They believe that they themselves can make themselves right with God, but Paul and Jesus and others taught that we got our righteousness through faith in Jesus. We are made right with God through faith, not right through works of the law or religious behavior. The Pharisees believed that the path to righteousness was to be sinless. 
which means you have to deny that you sinned or else you're not right with God, right? You either deny your sin or excuse your sin or defend it or protect it. Jesus taught that the path to righteousness was not to be sinless because that's impossible. The path to righteousness is to be forgiven of sin. Not sinless, but forgiven of sin. You and I are not sinless. Anyone that says that they're sinless is a liar, James says. Paul said it's impossible. No one has lived this life of sinlessness. So we accept that we've sinned and then we receive God's grace and forgiveness for that. We don't try to close the gap on our own through attending church or giving money or praying or reading the Bible, these religious behaviors. Only Jesus can close that gap through forgiveness. Now, it's interesting to me that in this passage, Jesus doesn't use a parable to confront the woman's sin. He doesn't confront the sin of the prostitute. He's confronting the sin of the Pharisee, right? That's interesting to me. He's going at the religious person here. There's something about religious sin that is just sneakier than all other sin. It's sin and you paint it over with this kind of like vaguely spiritual paint, you know, so people don't see it. You know, you know, it's easy to see drunkenness. It's easy to see sexual immorality. You know what's really hard to see? Pride. You know, when you're, when you're a good Christian, you know, as soon as you think you're a good Christian and that pride sneaks in, all of a sudden you're not a good Christian. You know, like as soon as you're feeling good about yourself, you should be feeling bad about yourself. And I'm, I'm just, I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just saying like we should always be dependent on God's grace. If we start to feel kind of puffed up, like I got this, I can do this Christianity thing. Oh man, that's a dangerous place to be. I got this under control. So Jesus uses this parable to go at the sin of the Pharisee. So I want to just take a minute to confront our religious sin. We spend plenty of time on sexual sin and hatred and violence, but let's talk about religious sin. When you use the Bible to gloss over our sin, I mean, we have used the Bible to permit racism. We've used the Bible to permit sexism. We've used the Bible to abuse people. We've used the Bible to defend hate. We, if we just cover it over the little like shallow spirituality, we can get away with almost anything. I think Jesus hates that. Jesus went against that exact thing in the lives of the Pharisees. He exposed it for what it was. He called it poisonous. He compared them to you know, graves full of bones uh, that, would, that would make people unclean. I think if we would just protest our own religious sin, the way we protest sins in our culture and sins in our society. I've never, I've driven past so many picket lines and protesters and billboards that are calling out sin. I've never once seen someone outside of a church protesting lukewarm Christianity. I've never once seen someone outside of a church protesting hypocrisy. If we would just take that stuff seriously, you know what I mean? I, when I was a very, in my first year of following Jesus, I learned a phrase that was going to keep me holy the rest of my life. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. If I could just do that and avoid, you know, you know how many times I burned all my 
non-Christian music and church camp bonfires. I would hear a sermon on the evils of the world, and I would take all my CDs and throw them in the fire. A week later, I had to buy them all over again. You know how many times I bought the first Weezer album? Five, which means I burned it four times. I thought that was holiness. I wasn't dealing with pride. I wasn't dealing with hate. I wasn't dealing with lust. I was dealing with CDs. That was so much easier. And if you did it in public, you got credit. If we would protest religious sin, if we would protest hypocrisy, if we would take those things seriously, the church would experience everything Jesus has designed for the church to experience. You know, there's only one sin in the Bible that makes God vomit. It's not abortion, it's not gay marriage, it's lukewarm faith. That's what he hates. I wish that we would take that as seriously as we take those other two issues. I wish that we would protest that. I wish that we would say we're not going to let ourselves get half-hearted in our love for God, partial devotion. We're not going to cover it over with a religious veneer, you know, use spiritual phrases and act religious to cover over the shallowness of our faith. I, I wish that we would actually protest our own sin the way we protest other sins. If we did that, the church would stand out. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.